And now, for the show reflecting on classic radio, Hollywood 360, with your host, Carl Amari. Who's that strange-looking man behind you? That's Carl. I'm at him at the laundry, man. Sam, sweetheart. I don't know what to do, Rabbi. Every night he listens to the radio. I can't keep him away. The Lone Ranger, uh, the Shadow, the Master Avenger. Uh, this is not good. It tends to induce bad values, false dreams, lazy habits. Want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Guys! 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 Fellas, you think we could listen to the radio or something? Hello everyone, I'm Carl Amari and this is Hollywood 360, the radio show that presents the best in classic radio. This hour on Hollywood 360, we'll conclude the Doris Day show from 1952 with guests Bob Crosby and Ronald Reagan. Then we'll document a true crime case and search for clues that could solve it on Somebody Knows from 1950. By my side is my co-host, Lisa Wolf. What's up, Lisa? What's up, Carl? Hey, what's happening in Hollywood? Well, there's a newly established Live Hall of Fame. Do you know what that is? It honors artists who have made a huge impact on the live business. So we have a Grammy for recordings and Academy Awards for movies. And now we have what they call the Live Hall of Fame for artists who go out and do tours and live shows. Hmm. It's a whole new um, award. Would we qualify? Because this is a live show. It is a live show. Do you sing? No. Then um, I do in the shower. Yeah. Does that count? It might. Nobody can hear me, though. Yeah, that's a problem. Maybe I should record it and then play it on the air. If you can go out and touch millions of fans with your live show, I don't want to touch them while I'm in the shower, though. That probably would be. Touch them, you know, emotionally. Some other way with a song. (laughs) Some other way. So, who do you think the first inductee is? He just got into this new live hall of fame. He was just inducted. Mm, I don't know. You probably don't know him. Who? Garth Brooks. Oh, yeah. I know okay. him. Yeah, you, he's You know great. him. You see him all the time, right? Yeah, he comes over Garth for dinner. Brooks. So he recently wrapped his record-breaking three-year comeback tour, which sold over 6.3 million tickets. Jeez. That is That is just mind-boggling. Mind, it is mind-boggling. Right? That's it's, like money that, like, you're kind of money. Oh, yeah. I mean, we kind of like live Lisa the Wolf same, money. Garth Brooks and I, we live the same kind of a life. Yeah. This is the Private biggest North American tour by a solo Maybach artist. Cars. I don't know what Maybach is, but <laughs> I've got the Lamborghini parked outside. The biggest North American tour by a solo artist, Garth Brooks, 56. He's the... Um, first inductee into the new live hall of fame all right well thanks lisa thanks carl all right are you ready for the conclusion to the doris day show we started listening to this last time let's go back to june 1st 1952 doris day has special guests bob crosby and ronald reagan here's the conclusion to the doris day show Bob, just what would you have done with the winning team? Well, now, if you and Ronnie will come out the ballpark, uh, I'll show you. Okay. Take us out to the ball game. Take us out to the park. I will play Alex the pitching great. And I can be Amy, his sweet loving mate. And I will be Rogers Hornsby. Fans still worship his fame. Yahoo! So, so it's, it's one, two, three strikes. You're out at the old ball game. 
All right, now. All right. Come on, you guys. Come on. We're in the thick of the pennant race, and I brought old Alex out of retirement to make sure we bring that flag home to St. Louis. You guys all know your baseball inside out, so before you go out on that field today, there's one thing I want you to do. What's that, Rog? Take off those football uniforms. <laughs> okay, Rog. And there's one more thing, guys. One more thing. This game means a lot to me. If we win it, I can pay off the mortgage on my old grandmother's house. So win it for my poor old grandmother. Okay, Raj. By the way, who's playing shortstop? My poor old grandmother. <laughs> now remember, we've got to win this game and the pennant. St. Louis has been in the cellar so long, they're starting to keep score on the gas meter. <laughs> Come on now, fellas. We... Let's get out there. Let's play ball. Amy. Hello, Alex. Amy, you shouldn't have come down here to the locker room. Well, why not? Well, you know ball players. They can never let a curve go by without taking a swing at it. <laughs> oh, I just had to come down to see you, Alex. Are you in good condition? Sure, baby. Don't worry about me. When I started practicing for my comeback, I couldn't hit the side of a barn with a baseball. But now I'm okay. You are? Sure. Now I can hit the side of a barn three times out of four. <laughs> I told all the guys on the team that my pitching arm is in shape again. I hope they believe me. Oh, they do. On the way in here, I heard some of them talking, and one said, Boy, that Alex, he sure can throw it. <laughs> good to know they got confidence in me. Oh, but Alex, you've got double vision. Did you tell Raj that your vision is bad? No, Amy, and don't you tell him either. Hey, Alex. Alex, it's the seventh inning, and we need you. What's the score, Raj? St. <laughs> Louis 3, Chicago 84. I got to take my pitcher out. They're beginning to hit him. Looks like I gotta put you in, Alex. <laughs> oh, you can't do it, Raj. His vision is bad. He doesn't see well. Don't believe it, Raj. My vision is fine. But it isn't, I tell you. Amy, are you sure that Alex don't see well? Well, I can prove it. For the last two months, when he leaves the house in the morning, he kisses the maid goodbye. <laughs> well, that doesn't prove anything. I do the same thing, and my eyes are perfect. <laughs> Alex, we're in a tough spot. They got the bases loaded. Lazari is at bat. It's up to you. Now, you got courage, Alex. You got courage. So go on out there and fight. Okay. Give me my glove. <laughs> Look at him walk out to that mound, Amy. Come on, Alex. Strike him out. He's winding up. Right, one. Yes, sure did, Alex. He couldn't even see that ball. Boy, Alex, you can still do tricks with a baseball. That's the funny thing about that. What do you mean? I did the whole thing without a ball. <laughs> oh, Bob, we sure had fun with your version of the winning team, but the original is a lot different, you know. That's right, Bob. It has humor, but it has a lot of other things, too. A tender love story, pathos, great characters... And the action scenes show why baseball has become the great American game that it is. I'll go along with that run. The picture had something else that to me was pretty wonderful. The scene where the, where the family gathered in the big farmhouse kitchen to decorate the Christmas tree, that was a real taffy pull. Packages were wrapped, mistletoe was hung, and Amy sang Old St. Nicholas. Remember that scene, Ron? It'll be a long time before I forget it. Hey, Doris, sing it for us now, huh? All right, I'd love to. St. 
Nicholas, you're the one who jumped for joy whenever oh, the jolly old Saint Nicholas passes by, bread and spirit with a twinkling eye. Old Saint Nicholas overhead, you hang that wick of merry mistletoe, and old Saint Nicholas, gay are we, catch your kisses near the Yuletide tree. How does it feel to be such a Mr. Big King of the party each year? How does it feel to be so full of captivating Christmas cheer? So, St. Nicholas, here's to you. A toast for bringing good to the young and old. St. Nicholas, hip hooray. Have a happy Christmas day. man we know and to everybody's home he'll go when the weather's at a cold degree can't you guess what it can be oh saint nicholas you're the one won't saint nicholas the jolly old saint nicholas passes by bread and spirit with the twinkling eye old saint nicholas overhead oh saint nicholas St. Nicholas, but it did seem a little out of season doing a Christmas song this time of year. Well, you can make up for it at Christmas time by singing June is busting out all over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say so long now, Doris. <laughs> Me too, Dodo. Say, I want to get up early tomorrow morning and get down to the May Company. Oh, uh, what for? Well, you just made me realize that there's only 184 more shopping days till Christmas. <laughs> so long, fellas, and thanks so much for being with us tonight. I guess that about brings us to the end of our first show for Rexall, and I sincerely hope you liked it. Incidentally, if there's a particular favorite song you'd like to hear, just drop me a line, won't you? Meanwhile, until we get together again next week... I love each moment with you, love to be with you, honest I do. songs for you. So long, everybody. The Doris Day Show is a Martin Melcher production directed by Sam Pierce and written by Jesse Goldstein and David Gregory. It comes to you transcribed from Hollywood. 
Doris Day appears through the courtesy of Warner Brothers Pictures and may soon be seen co-starring with tonight's guest, Ronald Reagan, in The Winning Team. Bob Crosby is heard on the Campbell Soup Club 15 show on CBS Radio. The Doris Day Show is heard by the men and women overseas through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio Service. This is Roy Rowan reminding you to visit your friendly Rexall druggist. Good night. See you next Sunday. This is the CBS Radio Network. That's the Doris Day Show from June 1st, 1952. Doris Day starring with Bob Crosby and Ronald Reagan as her guests, as heard on CBS. Hope you enjoyed that. Let's take a break. When we come back, it's Somebody Knows. Don't go away. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Welcome back. I'm Carl Amari. This is Hollywood 360 broadcasting across the country on nearly 200 radio stations. And if you uh, miss any of our show, you can always pick it up via podcast at our website, which is Hollywood360radio.com. Time now for a good mystery. This was a summer replacement for Suspense in 1950. It ran only eight episodes. It was called Somebody Knows. It was based on the notion that there are no perfect crimes, that someone, somewhere could have the one missing clue that would solve a celebrated murder case. Now, the producers would pay, ready for this, $5,000 back in 1950 to a listener who could send in a clue to solve the dramatized actual crime case. Now, one of the cases included the murder of Elizabeth Short, the victim, in the notorious Black Dahlia case. L.A.'s best supporting actors acted in this program, including Harry Bartell, William Conrad, and Ben Wright. Very, very interesting series. And we have an episode for you now from August 3rd, 1950. This is called The Unsolved Murder of Paula Kohler Eubanks, and it stars Herb Vigrant. Let's tune this in. Part one of Somebody Knows. Ladies and gentlemen... A $5,000 reward will be offered each week on the program immediately following this announcement. You out there. You who think you've committed the perfect crime, the perfect murder, and that there are no clues, no witnesses, that your identity is unknown. Listen. Somebody knows. Yes, you, wherever you may be, no matter where you're hiding... Somewhere, sometime, someone listening to this program is going to bring you to justice. Yes? Somebody knows. The Columbia Broadcasting System presents Somebody Knows, a program conceived in the public interest, dedicated to aiding the forces of law and order in the solution of this nation's unsolved crimes. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to recreate for you tonight all the known facts in an actual unsolved murder. Somewhere, someone among you's had contact with the killer or killers. Someone whose identity need never be known has seen evidence or possesses information that can lead to the solution of this crime. In the public interest, the Columbia Broadcasting System offers $5,000 reward for evidence or information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer in this unsolved murder. We ask you then to please listen carefully, for you may be the one to win this reward. 
Somebody knows. It may be you. And now we open the files on one of this nation's unsolved murders. It's homicide file number A1-1947 of the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. The unsolved murder of Paula Kohler Eubanks. It is approximately 10.15 in the morning, Thursday, June 26, 1947. Several men are walking along a corridor in Menorah Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. At what time was he admitted to the hospital, Doctor? I would say it was at approximately 7.30, Mr. Kimbrell. He was in need of immediate medical attention, which we gave him. Then, because of the nature of his injuries, mm. we felt the police should be notified. What about those injuries? Serious? Well, there are two deep lacerations on the right side of the head, and while we're not sure yet, a depressed skull fracture seems indicated. I see. Uh, here's his room now. Just about five minutes, Mr. Kimbrough, his condition. I understand, Dr. Mr. Mendoza? Mr. Men... There are some men here who'd like to ask you a few questions. Men? Questions? Yes, Mr. Mendoza. I'm James Kimbrell, prosecutor of Jackson County. These men are Mr. Randall, my assistant, and Detectives Gibson and Miller. What is it you... Is it about Paula Eubanks? It is, Mr. Mendoza. Have you any statement for us? I will tell you everything I know, Mr. Kimbrough. The statement of the injured man given on the morning of June 26, 1947 at Menorah Hospital and later in more detail to Lieutenant Charles Welch at the Homicide Bureau in Kansas City, Missouri contains in part the following information. My name is Hector Mendoza. I am 22 years of age, single, and live at the YMCA. I came to Kansas City about one month ago from Mexico City to obtain employment and learn the American way of tool designing. While staying at the YMCA, I had my meals at the Mayflower Grill, 403 and a half East 10th Street. While eating at this cafe, I became acquainted with a waitress named Paula Eubanks. I talked and joked with her on many occasions. On Wednesday, June 25th, I asked her for a date. We made arrangements to meet each other about 8.30 p.m. On Wednesday evening, June 25th, 1947, Hector Mendoza has his first date with Paula Eubanks. They visit several cafes and taverns, having a gay, pleasant evening, laughing, dancing, and joking. It's about 3.30 a.m. on the morning of Thursday, June 26th, 1947, that they return to the Fairfield Hotel at 923 Home Street, where Mrs. Eubanks has her apartment. Would you like to sit out here on the porch? Talk for a while, Hector. You know I would, Polly, if it is not too late for you. Oh, no. Now everything's been so nice. Here. We can sit down here. Yes, this will be very nice. Oh, it's been such a wonderful night, Hector. You're a very good dancer, you know. How could I be anything else when it was you with whom I was dancing? <laughs> there you go again, saying those nice things. You know, I'm going to miss you when you go to New York. Well, you know I mean them, Paula. As Paula Eubanks and Hector Mendoza sit on the front porch of the hotel talking, a heavy-set man is walking south on Home Street. As he reaches a point opposite the hotel, he turns in, moves up the steps, and onto the porch. That is why you meant so much to me when you 
And you made me feel so much at home here in Kansas City. You're so warm and gay and laughing. You. All right, you two. Get up. The man is standing beside them. The blue steel automatic in his hand is plainly visible. I said get up. Better do as he says. Get up. Now, put your hands up. All right. I know you. You're new in town. Yes, I... I've been here about six months. Yeah. Look, my friend, why don't Stand you... still. Do as he tells you. Yeah. If you're gonna rob us, take what you want. Yeah. I know you, fella. What's your name? Hector Mendoza. Yeah. I know you, fella. What's your name? It is Hector. Hector Mendoza. Mendoza remains unconscious for several minutes. When he finally recovers, he staggers weakly to his feet. Paul Eubanks and the man are gone. Mendoza walks down the steps and out to the sidewalk. There, some distance south on Holmes Street, he sees them enter an old coupe. Then the car drives off. It is now 4.15 a.m., the morning of Thursday, June 26, 1947. An old coupe is heading east on Independence Avenue. Near the 6,000 block, it approaches an old abandoned city dump. Then it slows and turns abruptly into the driveway leading into the dump. That's the first portion of Somebody Knows. More after these words. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Now back to Somebody Knows. It is now approximately 4.30 a.m., the morning of Thursday, June 26, 1947. In a one-room tin shack about 10 feet square located in the city dump, Clarence Bayless, former caretaker for the city, is sleeping. Then... What? What is it? What? Uh, who's there? What are you doing at that door? Clarence Bayless raises himself up in bed. There's one window in the tin shack. It's about two feet square and located in the upper half of the door. The chest and shoulders of a heavy-set man can be seen dimly against the darkness through that window. I said, what are you doing there? Keep quiet if you know what's good for you. I got a gun. Huh? Gun? You heard me, a gun. Take a look at it through the glass. So keep quiet. What? What are you doing with the door? I'm locking you in. Okay. Now remember what I said. Keep quiet, or I'll be back for you. Clarence Bayless remains in bed quietly, listening. Then, after a while, he hears the dim murmur of voices from somewhere outside the north side of the shack. 
The low, apparently friendly conversation continues for a short while. Then... Honey. Honey, no. Honey, don't kill me. Honey, don't kill me. I'm not going to kill you. I was trying to see if you were still asleep. Clarence Bayless continues to listen from inside the tin shack. He hears a faint sound as though a scuffle is taking place somewhere. It seems to be coming from an old shed some five feet away from Bayless's shack. It lasts a short while and then stops. What? What is it? What do you want now? I just wanted to see if you're still there, minding your own business. Yeah, I'm here. Then see that you stay there. I still got that gun. See it? So stay there and keep on minding your business. now 4.45 a.m., the morning of Thursday, June 26, 1947. A truck is driving eastward along Independence Avenue in Kansas City, Missouri. As the truck crosses the tracks of the Kansas City Terminal Railway and approaches the old abandoned city dump, two men suddenly run out from an all-night fruit stand across the street. They begin waving frantically at the truck, trying to flag it down. Hey, what's a big idea out there? You want to get killed or something? It's the idea of jumping... The police! Something happened! Go to the police station down the street and tell them to... Police station? What's wrong? What happened? I don't know for sure, but there was a man and a woman. He's nuts or something. He's got a gun. I seen him leave, leave but not her. She's disappeared. The, the noise they were like making... Like that, huh? Maybe... Okay. Okay. I'll get the cops for you. It's approximately 4.50 a.m., the morning of Thursday, June 26, 1947. In response to the truck driver's message, officers Anderson and McCrary have arrived at the city dump from the Sheffield station in police car 302. Clarence Bayless is leading them back to the shed where the events of the past half hour had taken place. And by the time I got out, this guy was gone, driving away. Did you get the license number? No, like I say, he was already driving away, but I hear these funny noises in this shed next to mine. Here, here, this one. And they were inside. The, the noises came from here, too. Okay, we'll look around. Come on, let's see what we Nothing in here but a lot of junk, Bayless. You sure they were inside here? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. That, that's where the noises came from. Well, there's nobody in here now. You're sure that lady didn't leave with her? Oh, I tell you, she didn't. I, I seen through my window. She must be around here somewhere. She must be. Okay, okay, we'll look around. For over ten minutes, officers Anderson and McCrary search that junk and debris-filled shed, their flashlights affording the only illumination. And then... Here, give me a hand with this. I yeah. think maybe... Here. Give me a hand. They start pulling apart a pile of junk at one side of the shed. They removed several tin buckets, a large sheet of plywood some eight feet square, finally an old automobile seat cushion. Hmm. A 
Looks like Bayless was right. The lady didn't leave this shed. At that same moment at police headquarters, two detectives are working the midnight to 8 a.m. homicide bureau shift. They're detectives Wayne Gibson and Isla Miller. Talk about your quiet nights. This one's really dragging by. Nothing much happening for a fact, but you never know it. KGPE, Anderson, car 302. Hello, KGPE. Car 302, KGPE. Dead woman, found a dump at Independence Avenue and White. Dead woman, what Independence are you Avenue about and White. Quiet nights. Okay, well, a guy KGPE, can't be right all the time. Let's go. Detectives Gibson and Miller leave immediately in cruiser number 22 and go to the scene of the crime. Their initial homicide report, as given to Chief of Detectives Frank B. Collins, contains the following information. On arrival at Independence Avenue in White, Officers Anderson and McQuarrie, car 302, directed us to an old shed which is located on what used to be a city dump. Lying on the floor, we found the victim. She was lying face down. The face was bloody, and spots of blood were around the body and on the walls of this shed. Lieutenant Welch was notified immediately, also the prosecutor's office. Within a few minutes after his notification, Lieutenant Charles Welch, head of homicide, arrived at the scene and was fully informed of the situation. What about the identification, Gibson? None made as yet, Lieutenant. Well, who's representing the coroner's office? Deputy Coroner Jack Gibbs. Yes, and as soon as you're through, Lieutenant, I'll send the body to the J.P. Shield funeral home. What about you, Kilbane? We're through with the picture. The lab men finished up, too. All right, then. She can be removed. The dispatcher is trying to get through to you, Lieutenant. He thinks he has something for you about this. Thanks, Miller. I'll take it in your cruiser. KGPE, Lieutenant Welch. KGPE. Lieutenant Welch? KGPE, we received a call from the Fairfield Hotel at 923 Holmes. The managers report some large spots of blood on the front porch. Also a woman's raincoat and black pocketbook on one of the chairs. Mm. They belong to a Mrs. Paula Eubanks, one of their tenants. They've checked and say a room's empty, hasn't been slept in. All right, dispatcher, uh, we'll check on it. At the Fairfield Hotel, the police talk to Mr. and Mrs. Charles Logeman, the managers. Then Mrs. Logeman is taken to the funeral home. She identifies the victim of the killing as Mrs. Paula Kohler Eubanks. Meanwhile, Dr. James Walker, the coroner, has made a preliminary medical examination. The findings... It would appear without thorough autopsy that Mrs. Eubanks died from strangulation. The bruises on the victim's hands, face, and neck include those apparently inflicted by the killer while strangling her to stop her screams. It is also apparent that she was struck a number of times by blows from some blunt instrument, probably a pistol. There is no evidence of criminal assault. In Paul Eubanks' black leather purse, left behind on the porch, is a small book. It contains a number of names and addresses. Among those names is that of Hector Mendoza. With the call from the Manora Hospital that he was admitted in an injured condition, Mendoza is questioned in his statement taken. In it, he gives the police a description of the man who struck him and walked away with Paul Eubanks. The general pickup is immediately broadcast. KGPE, all stations. Pick up for investigation of murder, one white man. 
Age 28 to 30. Height 5 foot 10. Weight 170 to 180. Dirty blonde. Small mustache. Heavy, thick shoulders. When last seen was wearing dark double-breasted suit, dark felt hat. AGPE 1142. In an effort to find some possible motive for the crime and a possible clue to the killer's identity, the police make a thorough check of all Mrs. Eubanks' friends, a thorough investigation into her past life. Mrs. Margaret Dallas of 920 Home Street tells the police, I used to work at the Mayflower Grill with Polly. Her close friends always called her Polly. She was friendly, a nice girl, and she had lots of admirers. I can't think of any reason why anyone would want to... to kill her. Mrs. Ann Kramer of Overland Park, a sister of Paula Eubanks, had this to report. Polly was a wonderful girl. She she had some trouble in her life. She'd been divorced from her husband and remarried to him and then separated again. But she she had a wonderful spirit. She was just crazy about Nancy. That's Nancy Kay, her little 20-month-old adopted girl. Kept her in a, in a nursery, and I just don't know what's going to happen to Nancy Kay now. Then, a strange and unusual development takes place in the case. Mrs. Dora Ann Morell of 908 Jefferson Street, who'd worked as a waitress with Mrs. Eubanks at the Mayflower Grill some two months before, pays a visit to William H. Randall, assistant prosecutor of Jackson County. Polly called to me one day at the restaurant. She had a pad of restaurant order blanks in her hand. She wrote something on the back of one of those sheets and gave it to me. She told me to read them if anything ever happened to her. Here it is. Mrs. Morell hands over the order blank. On the back of it, Paula Eubanks had written a number of Bible references. The references were Proverbs 8.12. Revelations 3.12, Matthew 11.14, Matthew 17.10-14, and Mark 9.13. The prosecutor's office makes a careful study of the verses designated on the back of that order pad. Then, this statement is issued. The uh, verses apparently were selected to be read in chronological order by listing since the 14th verse of the 17th chapter of Matthew ends, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, and the uh, reference continues with Mark 9:13, which reads, But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. <clears throat> the name Elias is frequent in the verses, beginning with Matthew 11:14. In the 17th chapter of Matthew, the name Elias occurs three times, including the 12th verse. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall the Son of Man suffer of them. In the uh, next verse, Matthew 17:13 continues. The disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Whatever Mrs. Paul Eubanks may have had in mind when she wrote those biblical references is not apparent to us. Not yet. Now listen carefully, please. Listen, all of you, wherever you may be. We're going to give you a recapitulation of all the pertinent facts in the unsolved murder 
of Paula Kohler Eubanks. Better make a note of them. And remember, by following the instructions we shall give you in a moment, you may be the one to earn a $5,000 reward. Now, here are the actual facts in the case. Mrs. Paula Kohler Eubanks, 27 years of age, was strangled and beaten to death in an abandoned city dump at approximately 6100 Independence Avenue in Kansas City, Missouri. The time, approximately 4.40 a.m., Thursday, June 26th, 1947. Now, here is a description of the man wanted for investigation in the murder as broadcast by the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. Please listen carefully. Age, 28 to 30. Height, 5 foot 10. Weight, 170 to 180. Dirty blonde, small mustache, heavy, thick shoulders. When last seen, was wearing dark, double-breasted suit, dark felt hat. Ladies and gentlemen, if any of you possesses information that may have a bearing on the unsolved murder of Paula Kohler Eubanks, and please don't send in guesses or hunches, but only actual, authentic information... Follow these instructions so that your name and identity need never be made known unless you wish. Now, please listen carefully. Write your information on a plain sheet of paper. Do not sign your name. Instead, sign it with six numbers, any arrangement of any six numbers. Then tear off a blank corner of that paper with a ragged edge. Write the same six numbers on that corner and keep it. Mail the rest of the paper with the information to Somebody Knows, Hollywood, California. You need tell no one what you have done. Mail your letter to Somebody Knows, Hollywood, California. And if the information you've supplied leads to the arrest and conviction of the killer of Paula Kohler Eubanks, we'll announce your signature number on this program. Then, if you don't want your name to be known, go to your lawyer or your doctor, your priest, minister, or rabbi, and have him present the torn corner of the paper to any CBS station. In this way, you do not need to appear in person. If the torn corner matches the original paper containing the information, the $5,000 reward will be yours. Remember, you, wherever you are, you whose name need never be known, may win a reward of $5,000. Next week, at the same time, we'll present another true case history of unsolved murder. It's homicide file number H.F. One, two, three, four, two. From the records of the Boston, Massachusetts Police Department, the unsolved murder of Samuel I. Paris. You out there, you who have murdered in cold blood and think you've gotten away with it, listen, you cannot escape. There is no perfect crime. Remember, you are not unknown. Somebody knows. Tonight's case was written by Sidney Marshall from information in the files of the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. Research was by Maurice Zim. Music was composed and played by Milton Charles. Somebody Knows is a James L. Safier production in association with CBS by arrangement with the Chicago Sun-Times and is based on a copyright owned by W.L. Finstad. It was narrated and directed by Jack Johnstone. In order to be eligible for the reward, letters containing actual, authentic information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer or killers of Paula Kohler Eubanks 
must be addressed to Somebody Knows, Hollywood, California, and must be postmarked not later than midnight, August 23, 1950. Arrest of the guilty person or persons must occur within 90 days of that date, and conviction must be within one year of tonight's broadcast. If more than one person gives the information leading to conviction, our judges will divide the $5,000 reward among them in proportion to the importance the judges attach to the facts supplied. And in this, the decision of our judges will be final. Until next Thursday at the same time, this is Frank Goss saying good night. And remember, somebody knows. Now stay tuned for Casey, crime photographer, which follows immediately on most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, where you'll find Arthur Godfrey's daytime program every Monday through Friday on the Columbia Broadcasting System. And that's Somebody Knows from August 3rd, 1950, with the unsolved murder of Paula Kohler Eubanks, starring Herb Vigren, that was sustained over CBS. Hope you enjoyed that. Let's take a break. Then it's more here on Hollywood 360. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. Hi, this is Sarah Knight Adamson. I'm the national film critic for the website sarahsbackstagepass.com. I'm a member of the Broadcast Film Critics Association in L.A. and a voting member of the Critics' Choice Film Awards. Coming up next, you'll hear a film review of a movie that's playing near you. Red Sparrow, rated R, is based on a novel of the same name. Jennifer Lawrence stars as a Russian operative, a life and profession she did not choose. After a career-ending fall as a ballerina, she had no choice but to enter a dangerous world of seduction and betrayal. Let's take a listen. I was told to take a man to a hotel. They said he was an enemy of the state. Take off your dress. In an exchange, my mother would get the doctor she needed. Instead, they cut his throat. The film is directed by Francis Lawrence, who also directed Jennifer Lawrence, no relation, in three of the four Hunger Game films. Here's another clip. She's a sparrow. You only matter because of what you can do for them. Work with me and make these men pay. You are better at this than any of us. Your only problem is you have a soul. The bottom line? I'm out. Two stars out of four. The film is brutally violent and degrading towards women. Taking the Me Too movement backwards. Oh, not cool. Not cool at all. Charlize Theron's character in Atomic Blonde at least had a choice with her profession. Jennifer Lawrence's Sparrow has no choice. She is forced and manipulated. The film also stars Joel Edgerton and Jeremy Irons. Mm Mm-mm, I'm out. Check out all of my reviews and interviews on sarahsbackstagepass.com. See you next week. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Next week, we'll celebrate St. Patrick's Day with the screen director's Playhouse, The Burns and Allen Show, Cloak and Dagger, The Hallmark Playhouse, Fibber McGee and Molly, and Lights Out. For my team here at Hollywood 360, thank you all very much for tuning in. Stay safe. We'll see you next time.